For most people, doubt arises when the facts of life and the facts of faith collide. When the problems of life seem to contradict the promises of the word, the end result can be debilitating doubt. Doubt has been defined as uncertainty regarding the truth. It has been commonly portrayed as wavering between two opinions. Maybe there's been a life experience of yours that has left you doubting the goodness of God, questioning the truthfulness of God's word, or wondering if God is really paying much attention to you at all. If you have ever suffered from doubt, despair, discouragement, I want you to know that you're not alone. Some of God's best and brightest have suffered from many of these things. Today we continue our sermon series entitled Faith, a study of the life of Abraham. When we catch up with the patriarch this morning, we will discover that he has some bone-crushing doubt that's in his mind and on his heart. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 1 to 6. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, as today we talk about living between doubt and devotion. Genesis chapter 15, let's begin at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the heavens. Count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. When we last left Abraham, he was successfully traveling from Ur of the Chaldeans to the promised land of Canaan. We discovered four facts about faith. These facts which serve as transferable truth into your life and into mine. For example, we said that faith always begins with God. Faith never leaves you where you are, but leads you to where God wants you to be. Faith is a one-way ticket of absolute obedience. And faith holds lightly to possessions and tightly to the provider. Much has happened since Genesis chapter 12. In fact, it's safe to say that the life of Abraham has not been comfortable, nor has it been carefree. 
After the blockbuster blessing that God gives to Abraham, we read towards the end of Genesis chapter 12 that a severe famine strikes the land, causing Abraham to be driven south to Egypt in the hopes of finding food for himself and for his family. He gathers all his belongings. He makes his way toward Egypt. We are told that he has a conversation with Sarah, his wife. He says to her, you are beautiful. Thinking that that is a compliment, she must have responded, oh, thank you. And then Abraham continued, when we get to Egypt, they will assume that you are my wife and then they will kill me. So, Say to them, you are my sister, and because of you, life will go well for me. Church, I must confess, no stranger words have ever been written in all of sacred scripture. The author uses a great deal of restraint in describing this scenario. But can we just be honest, what's going on here? Abraham is so fearful that he is going to be killed, that he's willing to prostitute his wife in order to save his own skin. This is despicable. This is unthinkable. This is amazing that this idea would even come into the mind of Abraham and my friends. This is God's selection as the father of the nations. Are you kidding me? And for some reason, Sarah goes along. I mean, she goes, okay, all right. So they get there, and sure enough, they think that she is his wife. They say, no, 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 she is my sister. She catches the attention of Pharaoh. Pharaoh calls her to the palace, takes her as his wife. And then once again, with a great deal of restraint, the author just simply says that God inflicted diseases upon Pharaoh and his entire household. Pharaoh screams out. He calls for Abraham. He says, what have you done to me, man? Why did you tell me that she is your sister when all the while she is your wife? Take her, leave, and go. At the end of Genesis chapter 12, Abraham leaves in humiliation from Egypt and he returns back to the promised land of Canaan. In Genesis 13, a family squabble erupts. It's a little fight that goes between the herdsmen of Lot and the shepherds of Abraham. You know what they're fighting about? This family feud is about real estate. They say there's not enough land for all of our flocks to graze. In fact, uh, Lot's sheep are intermingling with Abraham's sheep, and, and we can't have this. Uh, we're, we're growing so large, there's not enough pasture land. So Uncle Abraham says to nephew Lot, you choose the land that you want. You take your flocks and go there. I'll go in the opposite direction. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. At the end of Genesis 13, Lot is going over the horizon to the land that is lush and great pasture. And Abraham is stuck to graze uh, over some dirt and rocks and sand. In Genesis 14, Abraham gets word that there is a skirmish that's broken out between some of the original inhabitants of the land of Canaan with his nephew Lot. 
In fact, he heard that Lot had been taken as a prisoner of war. And so we read that Abraham gathers his 318 men in his household. That's a mighty big household, isn't it? 318 men that serve as a small army for Abraham. They go to the area where Lot is held captive, and Abraham and his small militia, they kick some Canaanite tail. And they grab Lot and all of his family, and they head back home. They travel through what we would call Jerusalem. And there we're introduced to Melchizedek, who is described as the king of Jerusalem. And Abraham gives him a tenth of all that he has. This is one of the first pictures of the giving of the tithe. And so Abraham gives it to Melchizedek. And then we come to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. And the author simply writes, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. I want to submit to you this morning that the word of God came to the man of God in just the nick of time. Abraham is holding on to his faith by his fingernails. Doubt is swirling in his mind. I need to remind you that when Abraham left Haran in Genesis chapters 11 and 12, we are told that he was 75 years old. In the very next chapter of Genesis 16, we will discover that Abraham will be 86 years old when Ishmael is born. All that I just described for you, which only took a few minutes, apparently took about a decade to live. It was a decade, 10 years in fact, of of swirling doubt and and amazing questions and and bone-crushing despair. Questions that must have filled Abraham's mind. Questions like, uh, Lord, are you ever going to make good on your promise? God, are you going to give me a child? It's been 10 years and there's no prospect of pregnancy. Lord, uh, the window of opportunity is shrinking for me and my lovely wife. Uh, Lord, are you going to make my name great? Are you going to make me a blessing unto the nations? Is every nation going to be blessed through me and through my offspring? I don't have any offspring. Oh, Lord, did I make a mistake or did you make a mistake? Uh, Did I make a wrong turn or did you tell me not to come here? Lord, you've got to help me out here because there's doubt that's swirling all over my mind. Maybe this morning you can identify with Abraham. Maybe there's been a pocket of time in your life where doubt has swirled in your heart and mind. Maybe it's been a couple of months, maybe a year or two, maybe even a decade. Maybe it's not past, maybe it's present. Maybe you come into here and you are clinging to your faith by your fingernails. You're waiting for God to show up and show off. You're waiting for God to do something. It's not that you haven't prayed. It's not that you haven't asked. It's not that you don't even believe. Yes, you believe, but it seems as if God is not paying you any attention. And truth be told, you're doubting the very goodness of God and questioning the truthfulness of his word. And you wonder, one of us made a mistake. Was it me or was it God? Can you identify with Abraham? This is where Abraham is. And in just the nick of time, the word of God comes to the man of God. The word of God sustains the man of God. The word of God comes to Abram. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. In just the right moment, 
The Lord reminds Abraham, you have nothing to fear. Do not be afraid. You do realize that fear and faith cannot coexist. Where there is faith, it drives out fear. Where there is fear, it cripples faith. Faith and fear cannot coexist. So the Lord says to Abraham, you have nothing to fear. This morning, I wanna say to you, church, you have nothing to fear. If you are a child of God, if you are blood-bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a daughter or son of the King, you have nothing to fear. You don't need to fear the cancer. You don't need to fear the unemployment. You don't need to fear the strained relationship. You don't need to fear the downturned economy. You have nothing to fear. Why? Because you are a child of the King. So this morning, I want you to hear in your life what God spoke into the life of Abraham. Do not be afraid, Abram. He calls him by name. It's not only that God knows his name, but he calls Abraham by his name. In the narrative, there are at least two occasions when God calls Abraham by his name. Here in Genesis 15 and then in Genesis 22, when we are told that God said, Abraham, Abraham, take your one and only son Isaac and go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. This God who calls us knows us. He knows us personally. He knows us intimately. He calls us by name. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Now keep in mind that Abraham just came from a battle. He knows what it is to have a shield of protection. A shield would have been in the arsenal of any warrior. It would have been probably about a a four-foot-tall piece of metal behind which any soldier could crouch and hide, especially when the enemy was firing arrows in his direction. And the Lord says to Abraham, I am your shield. I am your protection. I am. I am the God who always was, always is, and always will be. I am the one who knows all things, is all things. I am am the one who is everywhere. You have nothing to fear because I am your shield. He says not I am a shield. He doesn't even say I am the shield. He says I am your shield. There is a relationship that exists between Abraham and his God. And God says, I know you by name and I've got your back and I've got your front I've got your sides. I've got you. I am your shield. That word shield can also be translated sovereign. I am your sovereign, which means I am the one that's over you. I am the one that's undergirding you. I am the one that is surrounding you. I am in complete control of your coming and your going both now and forevermore. I am your sovereign. I am your very great reward. Not only am I your protection in the here and now, but I am the promise in the there and then. This morning, I want to give you three characteristics of faith. The first one is this, that faith looks at life's problems in light of God's promises. Faith looks at life's problems in light of God's promises. 
The word of God comes to Abram in just the nick of time. He tells him, you have nothing to fear. I know you by name. We have a relationship. I am your shield. I am your sovereign. I'm the one who knows your future as certainly as I know your past. And I am your great reward. Oh, what a great word to come at just the right time. But apparently this is a hard lesson to learn. In verse 2, Abraham replies, O sovereign Lord, okay, so far so good. He's been listening to the word of God, right? The word of God said, I am your shield. I've already told you that can be translated, I am your sovereign. So he responds and he identifies God as who? The sovereign Lord, the sovereign one. Okay, you are the one who's over me and under me and surrounding me. Oh, sovereign Lord, so far so good, right? Let me give you a warning. It's about to tank rather quickly. Oh, sovereign Lord, what will you give me since I still remain childless? I have selected Eliezer of Damascus to receive my inheritance and to be my heir. You have given me no child. So I have selected a servant to be my son. Abraham started off so strong, didn't he? Oh, sovereign Lord, yes. But regardless of how fast he started out well, that's how quickly his faith tanked like a lame duck falling from the sky. In so many words, he says, Lord, uh, it's been 10 years. That's a mighty long time. It's been a decade. I've had all kinds of problems. I mean, there's been famine. There's been a trip to Egypt. There's been humiliation. There's been marital difficulties. There's been family squabbles over real estate. Um, there's been uh, skirmishes and outbreaks that I had to go and rescue a lot. I mean, this has not been a carefree trip. And if following your will is supposed to be comfortable, then I don't know if I'm following your will because it's everything but comfortable. And Lord, you promised me you were gonna make my name great. You promised me I would become a father of nations and you promised me you would bless the world through my offspring and it's been a decade and there ain't no bouncing baby boy yet. It doesn't appear that Abraham is angry at God though. It really doesn't appear that he's frustrated with God. It just seems that he's just put a lot of thought into this. He's just kind of been matter of fact. He's kind of thought to himself, you know what? I think I'm gonna have to take matters in my own hands. I think I'm gonna have to help God out a little bit. And so he says, I have selected Eliezer of Damascus. You know Eliezer, he's a good old boy. I love this guy. He, he's like my own son already. And I've selected him to be the recipient of my inheritance. Maybe through him, Lord, you will send the favor and send the blessing. I have already selected Eliezer of Damascus. That sounds logical. Sounds like a plausible idea. It even sounds like a pretty good idea. It's not a far-fetched idea because there were a lot of people in the days of Abraham, in the days of antiquity, that if they were left without a child, a husband and wife would adopt a servant as their son to carry on their name. It's not like he came up with an idea out of left field. This is a, this is a culturally acceptable suggestion. So I have chosen Eliezer 
of Damascus. It, it makes sense, it's logical, it's understandable, but there's just one problem. Have you ever tried to tell God what to do? Have you ever tried to help the Holy One? Have you ever tried to rescue the Redeemer? Have you ever tried to, to help God? Have you ever tried to make suggestions to the Savior? Have you ever tried to tell God what you're going to do and what you're not going to do? Have you ever made a decision and then gone to God in retrospect and asked Him to bless it? You ever been like Abraham? That's exactly what Abraham does. He says, now I've thought about this. This is a pretty good idea. I think, I think you'll go for it, God. Um, it seems as if this is the only way to really solve the problem. So I've already selected Eliezer. I want your favor to rest upon him. Does that sound okay? Verse four. The word of God comes to Abram again. God's word is mentioned not once but twice in these six verses. We find it in verse one. We also find it in verse four. And the Lord corrects Abraham. He does it, I think, very compassionately. I don't, I don't think he nails him to the wall. I think he's very kind when he does it. But he just simply says, rather straightforwardly, this man is not your heir. But a child coming from your own body will be your heir. In so many words, he's saying, I know the promise I made to you. And if I'm good enough to make the promise, I'm good enough to keep the promise. I know what I said, and I'll make it happen. Then God takes Abraham outside. It must have been under the cover of night. He says to Abraham, look up. Count the stars if you can. As numerous as the stars, so shall your offspring be. I think that God took Abraham outside to serve as an object lesson. I think he took Abraham outside to show Abraham who was the problem. The problem was not God. The problem was Abraham. I've already told you that faith looks at life's problems in light of God's promises. But Abraham was doing what you and I do so frequently. We look at life's problems in light of our own abilities. We look at life's problems in light of our own resources. We look at uh, life's problems in light of our own creativity. We look at life's problems in light of our own uh, intuition. We look at life's problems in light of us, in light of our ability, our resources. But faith says, I look at life's problems in light of God's promises. The problem is not the promise of God. The promise is not the problem is not the God of the promise. The problem is Abraham. So he takes him outside. Abraham, look up. Count the stars. If there was a conversation that went on at this moment between Abraham and God, it would have gone something like this. God says, Abraham, count the stars. And Abraham would have replied, I can't. And the Lord would have responded, but I can. The psalmist says in Psalm 147 that the Lord has determined the number of stars. And he calls each one by name. Abraham, 
count the stars. I can't. The Lord says, I can. Abraham, make for yourself a great nation. I can't. And the Lord says, I can. Abraham, make a child. God, I've been trying, but I can't. And God replies, but I can. Abraham, bless the nations. I can't. And God says, but I can. Second fact about faith is this, that faith takes I can't and turns it into he can. The Lord says to Abraham, count the stars. I can't count the stars. And God says, that's right. Now I've got you where I want you because I can do it. I've got them by name. I know their name. I know their number. And God is not like a parent or a grandparent who can't remember the right name of Junior or Sally. You know, you go through the whole list of names, uh, uh, Frank, uh, Fred, uh, Jennifer, uh, Sam, uh, 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 Sally. Yeah, Sally, that's right. God's not like that. God says, I know the number of stars and I know them by name. What you can't do, Abraham, I can. This morning, I want you to know that our God takes the I can't and turns it into he can. This morning, I want you to know that our God is big. His plans are bigger than our plans. His ideas are better than our ideas. Church, do you believe that there is no problem that Jesus can't fix? Church, do you believe that there is nothing insurmountable for the Savior? Do you believe that there is no mountain too high, no valley too low for our God? Church, I'm asking you now, do you believe that there is no drug addiction that is too strong for Christ to break and there is no marriage too broken for Christ to mend? Do you believe that there is no prognosis that is too bleak, there is no cancer that is too curable for our Lord. Do you believe there is no person who is too lost, there is no sin that is too grace, gross for the grace of God? Do you believe that our God can fix it? I came this morning just to tell you, there are some things in this world that money cannot fix. There are some things in this world that the military cannot fix. There are some things in this world that doctors cannot fix. There are some things in this world that medicine cannot fix. There's some things in this world that presidents cannot fix. There's some things in this world that Congress cannot fix. There's some things in this world that titles cannot fix. There's some things in this world education cannot fix. There's some things in this world your parents cannot fix. There's some things in this world your charisma cannot fix. There's some things in this world that you cannot fix. But there ain't nothing in this world that Jesus can't fix. Abraham is taken outside, told to look up into the heavens, count the stars. I can't. And God says, but I can. I've got them numbered and I've got them named. Verse 6. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Abraham believed God. The third characteristic of faith. Faith takes God at his word. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disobedience. Abraham could have walked back inside and he could have said there's no hope. But Abraham believed. He took God at his word. He trusted the Lord. In the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, these words are synonyms. To believe, to have faith are synonymous. Abraham took God at his word. He believed the Lord. He believed in spite of the fact that his body was old and falling apart. He believed in spite of the fact that Sarah was barren. He believed in spite of the fact that he was outliving Social Security. He believed in spite of the fact that Sarah was beyond menopause. He believed in spite of the fact that God had given, given the promise 10 years ago and nothing had happened yet, but that was no prediction that nothing was going to happen. He believed God. He took God at his word. He believed the very word of God because faith is taking God at his word. If he said it, he'll do it. If he promises it, he will make good on the promise. Because faith is taking God at his word. He believed, and Moses, who is the author of the Pentateuch, says, it was credited to him as righteousness. Moses has this idea in his mind of of a ledger between debts and credits. And because of our disobedience, because of our doubt, because of our despair, we have a side of debt that we cannot pay. And God has never set up the standard where if you somehow do more good than bad, it will pay off your debt, it will flip the scale into your favor, and you'll be granted access into the very presence of God. That has never been the standard of God. It has never been a weight of scales and measures. It has never been you do enough good, you'll get into a good heaven. The only way that you and I, Abraham, Sarah, David, anybody, the only way any of us get into heaven is by faith in the accomplished work of the Lord. It is by faith in the Trinitarian God. It is by faith in Christ. I would even advocate that Abraham believed in Jesus and believed in the sacrifice, uh, sacri- uh, sacrificial atoning work of Christ even before it even happened. And Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him as righteous God, not only why away the debt, but he credited Abraham as being right, innocent in the sight of God Almighty. Abraham believed, and it not only took away his debt, but it gave him the credit of the holy God of the universe. It was John R.W. Stott who said the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. Grace offers you forgiveness by faith you accepted. Grace offers you victorious life by faith you accepted. Grace offers you presence in the Lord and by faith you accepted. He believed. 
And it was credited unto him as righteousness, as innocence in the presence of the God of the universe. What does faith look like? Well, faith looks at life's problems in light of God's promises. And faith takes I can't and turns it into he can. And faith takes God at his word. Now before I sit down, I need to tell you that you realize that uh, many of you have already read the story. You've already read ahead, haven't you? You kind of have a sneaking suspicion that God's going to make good on his promise. You know that 25 years will pass, about 15 more years from Genesis 15, and God will give Abraham a son. His name? Isaac. And the flow of blessing will go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and on down the line. But before I sit down, I need to tell you that there is another son of Abraham. There's another son of Abraham who makes good on the promises of God. There's another son of Abraham that is connected to the line and lineage of Father Abraham, and he comes thousands of years after the blockbuster blessing. There is another son of Abraham. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth so that you and I may step out of earth and step into heaven. This other son of Abraham was born through the birth canal of a virgin girl. This other son of Abraham was born in a barn and buried in a borrowed tomb. This other son of Abraham lived a perfect life of some 33 years. This other son of Abraham came to seek and to save that which is lost. This other son of Abraham died on a cruel cross, not because of his mess ups, but because of yours. This other son of Abraham was placed in your grave and my grave. This other son of Abraham was raised to life on the third day. This other son of Abraham ascended into the heavens. This other son of Abraham is seated at the right hand of the father. This other son of Abraham has promised to come back and receive us unto himself. This other son of Abraham is the rose of Sharon. This other son of Abraham is the lily of the valley. This other son of Abraham is Christ alone. This other son of Abraham is none other than Jesus my Lord. This other son of Abraham is the king of all kings. This other son of Abraham is the Lord of all lords. This other son of Abraham is the Messiah of the ages. This other other son of Abraham is the eternal one of God. This other son of Abraham is none other than Jesus the Christ. Jesus my Lord. Jesus your Savior. This other son of Abraham comes to fulfill all the promises that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and all throughout the Old Testament. For we worship Christ and Christ alone. I know whom I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, because my faith has found a resting place. It's not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And that he died for me. 
Oh, church, Jesus came to plant faith inside of us. Jesus came to bolster faith within us. Jesus came to pull faith out of us. So we look at life's problems in light of God's promises. And because of faith, we say unto Christ, I can't. And he says, but I can. And you and I have a faith that takes God at his word. If he said it, he'll do it. Because the God who makes a promise, he keeps a promise, both now and forevermore. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. There may be somebody listening to my voice who has never accepted Christ as Lord, Savior. Oh, Father, today I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will reveal that it's because of our sin that Jesus came. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for being raised on the third day. Lord, there may be somebody here who knows what it is to have bone-crushing doubt. We're trying to fix it by our own resources. Oh, Father, today, Help us to declare unto you, I can't fix it, but you can. Have your way in the invitation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.